to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our crack producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara. Joining us from the Midlands of England this week, we've got Jake Hanrahan. Uh, Jake's an independent journalist, filmmaker, and the uh, creator and host of the Popular Front podcast. Really excellent, unique podcast on contemporary warfare. And yeah, also it's superb. On, I really suggest people check it out. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, not just warfare, but contemporary militant ideologies. And Jake's joining us to talk about Theodore Kaczynski, the Unabomber, his manifesto, industrial society and its future and then a bit later we're going to get into radiohead's record okay computer jake why don't you tell uh listeners a bit more about yourself and also why you wanted to talk about the unabomber manifesto yeah man definitely um thanks for having me on i listen to manifesto a lot um yeah so i'm a, a journalist and documentary filmmaker covering war and conflict uh, most specifically irregular warfare, so like, you know, like militias and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, I, I did a lot of work with Vice News when it was good and worked with HBO back in the day. And now I have my own um, platform, I guess, uh, independent media. It's called Popular Front. So yeah, man, uh, I think as well, you and me have a lot of kind of um, crossover in our work, specifically with the militant ideologies. Um, in terms of Ted Kaczynski, I don't know, man. It's one of their manifestos that I read. And was like, I know this guy did a lot of bad stuff, but he's got a point, <laughs> you know, uh, which is obviously you're not allowed to say that, but it's true. And a lot of people, even normal people that are not involved in all this radicalism and interested in it like I am, will read some of his stuff and be like, ah, oh, like he had a point, you know? Yeah, I do know. And I think that you can measure kind of the health or level of deterioration in the society by how many people are paying attention to Kaczynski in terms of the, the kind of content of his output rather than as just a curiosity. You know, it's like the, yeah. he's not saying – he hasn't said anything new. This manifesto, Industrial Society and its Future, came out in 1995. But there has been – and Jake has written about this. There has been over the past, I would say, five years or so, this kind of – growing cult around Kaczynski online, some of which has to do with the, uh, what do they call it? Not dark green, but basically the kind of right wing. Uh, oh, yeah, deep green ecology. Deep green ecology. Oh, no, the, the right wing thing is like, I don't know, like eco-fascist thing, but the, the deep deep green ecology is not necessarily related to the eco-fascism, but definitely now like I think, I don't know, man. I don't even really believe in this eco-fascist stuff. Like, to be honest, it's just normal fascists realizing that, oh, yeah, the world is fucked. And then all of a sudden they become, you know, eco-fascists. <laughs> yeah, I think it's sort of how you come to it, right? Like, yeah. the deep, uh, deep green people certainly aren't necessarily eco-fascists, and they're certainly not necessarily fascists, but... There's definitely some overlap in some of these movements. And, yeah, uh, true. You know, it's sort of just how people come to these things. And, well, the uh, fascinating thing I think about Kaczynski is that he appeals to both anarchists and leftists 
as well as uh, fascist and right wingers. You know, it's it's a weird one. Well, you rarely get that. So that's interesting. Now, I'll, I'll come out. I read this and I I thought like this guy's a freaking moron. Like I hated this. Yeah, I actually kind of came to it expecting expecting to have more of a similar reaction to to what you just said. Like, oh, this guy's got some good points. And I just I found um, I found myself frustrated almost immediately, and it began with his section on leftists, right? Mm. Um, and my general, which is where it opens, yeah, right? yeah, and, and it's like a rant against leftists where he sort of psychologizes them, which is a is a move that um, in political discourse I hate, right? Where it's like instead of responding to you or any of the points that you're making, I'm going to assume some sort of psychological malfunction and then talk about you in this sort of cheap pop psychology way. Um, and so like his whole thing on leftists is that they're like over-socialized and um, afraid of power. Um, I don't know. It, it, but you said that he's actually has a sort of following among leftists. Why is that? Well, I mean, he, he himself, I mean, I kind of agree with a lot of his um, arguments against leftism. And I'm, you know, technically considered, oh, hang on, someone's calling me. I'm technically, uh, like, considered uh, a leftist in the circles that I'm in. Some people are like, oh, you're an anarchist, whatever. I don't really commit to whatever I am, <laughs> you know what I mean? But I, I certainly agree with him in some parts. Like, I think the left is is and has been for a long time a joke. And I think that the when I read about the left, you know, I, I disagree with this over-socializing stuff, but I think the problem is there's there's like a lack of organizing. So I feel like what I'm trying to say is I think a lot of leftists that kind of sympathize with Kaczynski also are leftists but come from a place of frustration. Like they're sick of how the movement is, for example. You know, like post-left anarchists, a lot of them will like Kaczynski because they just they can't believe the state of like leftism right now. And also, you know, Kaczynski is a, is a kind of out-and-out out anarchist, you know, so it's, I mean, it's quite simple in his writings, I think. He accuses, you know, he, he tears apart the right wing as well at points. Um, and also he was in favor of, like, black liberation struggles and stuff like that. He was in favor of the Black Panthers and, you know, in favor of, like, I think similarly to, like, Malcolm X, the kind of thing of, like, let's not just do, oh, yeah, you can, you can chill out with us now. Like, he was believed in taking the the attack or the offensive to the aggressor, if you like, uh, or to the oppressor, I should say. Yeah, so I think, think in that respect, it's like an old school leftist kind of feel, you know? He's clearly sympathetic to uh, all, or maybe not all, but he's, he's clearly sympathetic in a general sense to militant revolt against the system and the establishment, as it were. And his complaint about leftism in part, is that it's not actually militant and that it's revolt is exactly. a, a counterfeit version of revolt. But I think many people hearing about the Unabomber's manifesto, their immediate association is just with the fact that it's anti-technology. And mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. they might not expect, I think many people would be surprised, just how much attention he gives to this analysis of the failings of the left and this analysis of the left in terms of its power relations. Um, and really that's actually at the heart of this. And part of the reason I think why it's at the heart of it is that 
he thinks the left by simulating revolt is foreclosing the possibility of genuine revolt in a way. Well, it, it's that sort of revolt as a means of expression rather than as a as an end, right? Yeah. Um, and it, it, in a way, it reminds me of like, I mean, there, there've been a variety of these critiques against a sort of like protest culture, right? Um, that isn't sort of properly organized. I remember Matt Taibbi was making this point about anti-war marches, um, and he said. Anyone who's ever been to a lefty political meeting knows the deal. The problem is the spirit of inclusiveness stretched to the limits of absurdity. The post-60s dogma that everybody's viewpoint is legitimate, everyone's choice about anything, lifestyle, gender, ethnicity, even class, is valid, that's now so totally ingrained that at every single meeting, every time some yutz gets up and starts rambling about anything, no matter how ridiculous, no one, no one ever tells him to shut the fuck up. Next thing you know, you've got guys on stilts wearing mime makeup and cat-in-the-hat striped top hats leading a half million people in an anti-war rally. Why is that guy there? Because no one told him that war is a matter of life and death and that he should leave his fucking stilts at home. All right, so obviously I can't allow that to pass without mentioning the fact that at the uh, protests in Portland this past week, this Antifa, whatever, Proud Boy face-off that is the same traveling roadshow that's been going on for three years now, a contingent of the DSA showed up in, what would you call them? Some people were in banana costumes. Some people were in video game character costumes. So there was what was supposedly an anti-fascist rally carried on by the DSA last week in which people showed up in banana and video game costumes. Now, those people will, I mean, they'll call you a fascist for pointing out the absurdity of them showing up to an anti-fascist rally in banana costumes. But I think that the banana costume speaks for itself, and that's all I'm going to say about that for right now. Let me go back to Kaczynski. I mean, the DSA, uh, I think they proved themselves a complete joke after that footage came out of their DSA con, and guys are standing up like, he, him, hers, he's a... Uh, can you not talk loudly? Like, bro, you think you're going to fucking lead a revolution? You can't even handle someone talking slightly loud next to you. Like, it's embarrassing, man. Yeah, I mean, it, it, look, it, it's similar to... I met with a guy from a, a British political movement, Jake, you might be familiar with, uh, called Blue Labour recently. Yeah, oh, God, yeah. I mean, they're basically, like... It's like Labour for people that are, like, I don't know... <laughs> yeah, I like him. <laughs> I'm pro blue labor. From what I know, listen, it's always easier to like some political thing going on in another country. You know what I mean? Yeah. For me, it's somebody I, I could have a conversation with. I don't have to. Um, like, yeah, they're rational. They're share like, they're a country. Talk to them. Yeah, yeah, and sort of broadly, uh, it's this kind of like socially conservative, uh, economically left wing, something yeah. like that. But he was making the point to me, this guy that the Labour Party under Corbyn has become, well, the, the kind of image is that it's become more radical. It's actually become more of an upper middle class party. But I just want to say that this point, the Taibi point, the banana costumes point, is not, it overlaps with what Kaczynski is saying, but it's not the same thing. Because Kaczynski's objection to the left is not just, I mean, he puts it in terms of psychology that his basic critique is that the left has this internalized inferiority that they then project out through because they're over socialized. They take the sense of inferiority 
and uh, they sort of projected out into, into power relations and into uh, false solidarity. It's a bunch of sort of like undergraduate level anti left wing conservative talking points. It's not. It's not because that no. that's that's not where it ends. Modern leftist philosophers tend to dismiss reason, science, objective reality, and to insist everything is culturally relative. Yeah, th- this is that is. I mean, if that's not a simplistic, I'm not saying it's not simplistic. I'm not mean, saying it's not simplistic. I'm saying you know, uh, like I'm just, sorry, Jake. Just some like uni professor or some fucking like wonk who wrote a book says, well, that's uh, that's basic graduate level shit. It's like, is it? Like, maybe a lot of people are thinking that. Maybe a lot of normal people that would like to be in the leftist movement are thinking what someone else says is basic graduate level stuff. You know, that's what I think. I don't know. It makes more sense to a normal person, I think, sometimes than it does to perhaps people that are into the radical politics, you know? Shouldn't you be in school? Fuck you! And fuck the establishment! And fuck you people who are trying to make me part of the unestablished establishment! All right, I'll pick you up tomorrow at 11 o'clock. I'll take you to the zoo, and we'll go to the ball game. Yeah, but see, this is why I think you're, you're both wrong here. This is why I disagree with both of you, because... <clears throat> It's not just that it's not just the cheap psychologizing, though there is some of that. But, Jake, you're saying you're sort of sympathizing with it from a position of this phony, psychologically projecting left has taken over the left. But Kaczynski's objection is to the left in toto in the sense that the traditional left, right, the non-graduate school left, the labor movement left – um, believed in progress, right? That's at the core of the idea of left-wing politics going back to the French Revolution is that human beings are capable of achieving progress through their own will and rationality. They're capable of improving the conditions of their own lives, of organizing collectively to improve the conditions of other people's lives. Like, This is the meaning of the left in a deeper sense, right? We are all Britons, and I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship, a self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there you go, bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people would... Please, please, good people. And Kaczynski mm-hmm. is against both of these things. He's against like well, and the, and if you're talking the French Revolution, a sort of vanguardist politics comes along with it, right? Because you have <laughs> you have the the sort of corrupt society, and then the vanguard that's going to express the the true people's will, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, it's 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 um, a lot of sort of ideas of like. False, co- false consciousness, and if these people knew what their true interests were, et cetera, et cetera, and we, the sort of self-appointed vanguard, understand what is actually the true desire of, you know, the sort of subaltern who cannot speak for themselves. Yeah, but what this guy is against is industrial technological society. Right. In total, right? He yeah. is an anarchist. And certainly, I'm not saying he's a leftist by any stretch. My point was, like, I understand why some leftists agree with a lot of his, um, like, dismissals. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely, right. absolutely. I just think that the leftists who agree with his dismissals, if they took it a step farther, you know, he's not just objecting to the kind of ridiculous or cartoonish 
aspects of certain segments of the left. He's against the whole project, top to bottom, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I think because he sees even basic organizing as some kind of authoritarian push on whatever. And I think, to be honest, the push he thinks it is is on his own ideas. And, like, frankly, the guy is a fucking blatant narcissist. You know what I mean? So I think that is his biggest problem. The narcissism, um, you know what I mean? absolutely. He organizing is against his will to organize himself, which is hilarious, but, you know. <laughs> no, that's spot on. I mean, he's got this whole psychological profile of the left, but this manifesto is a, a psychological profile of this guy in some sense. I mean, it, as were his actions, you know. Listen, Kaczynski killed three people. He injured uh, two dozen, I believe. And if you look at how, as a terrorist, he picked his victims, it was very personal. It wasn't this coldly analytic, rational right. calculation you know, he had planned at one point to, uh, I believe, bomb an airplane motivated by the fact that airplanes were bothering him as they flew overhead his cabin in Montana. He was like, that's a good target then. Yeah, like, These that woke me up. Like, let's kill loads of kids and innocent people on a plane. Like, nice one, Ted. Like, right. it's, I know what you mean. He's, I, don't, like, I think as a terrorist, he's, he's just shit. Like, he was so bad. Yeah. And he would directionless really other than like he's like a spoiled brat that turned into a terrorist but still like his ideas which is why i don't feel a problem you know reading his work and talking about people like oh my god how can you say that it's like look what he did was fucked but he wrote some interesting stuff you know what i mean and there's a weird disconnect where some people really cannot accept that but on both sides so for example people that like the writing some of them will defend his actions because what ted was right like get a grip and then on the other side people like he was a terrorist. Anything he said was bad. It's like, you know what I mean? It's in this weird kind of mix. You, you kind of, you can't really uh, penetrate either way. Actually, should we just go through and sort of explain what the, the manifesto is? I mean, it, it breaks down. First, it's got this attack against the left. And it ends with this notion that, like, the left is over-socialized, but we in general are over-socialized by a society that – uh, you know, to a greater extent than any previous society, we're told by experts how to eat, how to exercise, how to make love, how to raise our kids, and so forth, right? And, you know, this sort of, I think, this clocks with, like, a lot of, you know, critiques of a overly technologized society. There's um, Heidegger, right, talks about how there's a sort of way that modern technology holds a, a sway over how we see the world, how we reveal the world. Uh, it's a challenging which puts to nature the unreasonable demand that it supply energy which can be extracted and stored as such, right? Uh, and so he's com- – and his sort of example is like if you're looking at this hydroelectric plant built on the Rhine, right, that's just turning the river into a supplier of, of, of power. Uh, and he compares that to like an old wooden bridge uh, over the Rhine. And like that is like an aspect of technology that is in some way in harmony with nature that's the product of an artisanal process, versus a sort of instrumentalized uh, view of the world that it's not just that technology functions in an instrumental way, but that it sort of shapes us to think of ourselves and our nature in that way. And that this is something that I think in a sort of uh, more unsubtle way this manifesto is getting at. And then he has this sort of description of uh, (laughs) human fulfillment (laughs) – which he calls the power process. Um, and this is central to his 
this is really central to the manifesto is this idea of the power process as being intrinsic to human beings. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, I mean, basically... Yeah, he even a bit that he's like, uh, in order to avoid serious psychological problems, a human being needs goals whose attainment requires effort, and he must have a reasonable rate of success in attaining his goals. It's like, yeah, that, that's completely accurate. But then, yeah, he gets into... He turns it... He like, keeps building on it and turns it into like the power process where I think if you boil it down to it, he seems to think that like wanting to do anything uh, apart from destroy everything is bad. You know what I mean? Well, and he also... he's. He's obsessed with autonomy, and he almost has this, like, at times he'll, um, he'll talk about human liberty and autonomy in this way that almost kind of sounds like a, a sort of libertarian view of autonomy. He talks about, you know, like, you know, men out on the frontiers as these, like, rugged individuals. Um, and here, let me find the uh, – I think he defines um, – uh, autonomy. But by freedom, we mean the opportunity to go through the power process with real goals, not the artificial goals of surrogate activities, and without interference, manipulation, or supervision from anyone, especially from any large organization. Freedom means being in control. Uh, either as an individual or as a member of a small group of the life and de death issues of one's existence, food, clothing, shelter, and defense against whatever threats may be in one environment. Freedom means having power. Uh, not to the power to control the people, but to control the circumstances of one's own life. One does not have freedom if anyone, especially a large, or large organization, has power over anyone, no matter how benevolently, tolerantly, or permissively that power may be exercised. Um, and that's just such a, honestly, just like a, that paired with his desire to go back to primitive society um, where I think it's fairly obvious that like, in human freedom and autonomy was much more limited um, by the circumstances of life. It just seems like this sort of fantasy that he's he's playing into of an imaginary past that doesn't exist. Um, mm -hmm. I think it depends what you decide is free. You know what I mean? Like, we might think, oh, it's not as free back then because of one thing, but then he was like, well, you don't have to get planning permission to build a fucking fence. You know what I mean? Or... You can't. You can just plant a tree if you want to. You know what I'm saying. Whereas now it's like you need a fucking permit for everything. You're being watched 24/7. Like I think personally, I see him as being more making you know headway towards that as opposed to like a pipe dream. Like, I mean, it certainly is a pipe dream. And his his like um, his kind of if you get to the end of the manifesto, like what he his his kind of proposal after all of that is like let thousands of people die. Like it's horrible. But uh, he's certainly not, uh, he's, like, he's not an anarcho-primitivist. In fact, if you read his other works, um, technological slavery starts with a big um, like critique of uh, anarcho-primitivism, just saying how it's bullshit and how you know, Zerzan built most of it on basically wishful thinking. You know? So I, I, I know what you're saying, but I don't know. I think that's a, I don't know. I think you're picking out very specific points to kind of agree with why you think the guy's a dickhead. You know what I mean? Well, Whereas I'm, I'm I just think, like, I think, I think the question of freedom, it's, freedom is clearly, like, a really important thing in this manifesto, right? And, mm. and that's his definition of it. And I, part of the problem, and I think it's sort of general problem is, like, how do you achieve human freedom, right? Um, and what does that even, like, what does that even consist of? Um, is that the ultimate value? Um, you know, I'm thinking of, there's a bit in, 
Charles Taylor's The Secular Age, where he's talking about sort of the birth of, of modernity. Um, and so many, many communities of French peasants were transformed only late in the last century and inducted into France as a nation of 40 million individual citizens. Uh, as Eugene Weber has shown, he makes plain how much their previous mode of life depended on complementary modes of action, which were far from equal, especially but not only between the sexes. There was also the fate of younger siblings who renounced their share of the inheritance in order to keep the family property together and viable. In a world of indigence and insecurity, of perpetually threatening death, the rules of family and community seemed the only guarantee of survival. Modern modes of individualism seemed a luxury, a dangerous indulgence, right? And so this – there's – in, in many ways, this is like a very individualistic manifesto, but then it's projecting back a type of individualism that just into a sort of more primitive past that just didn't exist. Like the way the communities were structured and formed and the, and the sort of possibilities of, of, of human life, like the notion of a society of people conceiving themselves as individuals is a relatively modern phenomena, and it just – you know, <laughs> uh, and and sort of the the kind of basic question of what freedom is and how you achieve it is like a major philosophical problem of like the last couple centuries, and he just sort of assumes I think that you can have this relatively simplistic notion of freedom that you can have it in this relatively simplistic way, and uh, yeah, look, it's a manifesto, so it is. Crude yeah, right. and reductive right. and simplistic, but I think part of the reason people take it seriously is not just because they sympathize with the critique of technological society, let's say. It's because he has a coherent, if misguided, uh, but coherent, rather fully developed sense of what man's intrinsic purpose is, right? This power process thing is reductive uh, you know, simplistic, whatever, but not absurd. And it has a lot of explanatory power. So he is saying that the, the, the autonomous acquisition, the free pursuit of necessary goals is what constitutes the purpose of human life. And technological society, piece by piece, takes away the purpose of human life by reducing the number of necessary goals that people can freely pursue. In response, well, people no, no. come what, what up it with does these is surrogate so goals. His, his necessary goals are the things that keep you alive. Food, food clothing, shelter, and defense, right? Yes. And, <laughs> and then modernity provides, sort of takes the pressure off right. of, of providing for right. those so then we per pursue other surrogate goals that aren't, aren't as important to us, right? And yeah, we pursue those surrogate goals as a way of recreating the purpose we've been deprived by the outsourcing of the necessary goals, is his view. Yeah, and, and does, does modernity take the pressure off? Like, sure, it takes the pressure. I'm fucking glad I can just go to my fridge and make a sandwich, but, you know, I'm not glad that I, I feel depressed because I don't know my neighbor. Or that, like, you know, everyone that you try and have a conversation with is staring at their phones. Or that every time I walk down the street, I'm being watched by the government. The fact I need, in England, you need a fucking permit to go camping. You know, like, that sickens me. And, you know, modernity does offer a lot of pressure off. But it also, in my opinion, 
gives you as much pressure as it would be living in a primitive culture. I think, you know, you can see it. You people, when they're not attached to technology, look, people, when they want to get away, they go like, oh, I'll go and I'll go to the forest or something. There's a reason for that. Even as far as we've come, as much as we progress with technology, with modernity, people still to this day recognize that going to the forest or nature without your technology makes you feel better. And I think that really speaks about something, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. But also notice how many of those things that you mentioned were about sort of loss of community, right? You talked about not knowing your name, oh, yeah, being surrounded by yeah. people and then being on their phones, right? So, you know, um, one notion of freedom, right? So like, like Hegel talked about freedom in terms of like it wasn't arbitrariness, right? It wasn't just the ability to do whatever you want, um, freedom was the, the ability to pursue goals that have meaning within one's community where um, – and also meaning to the individual, right? And where the individual could also sort of – was not totally sort of encaged within one system of value. So like as – you know, around that time, like society is moving from like a sort of feudal structure to early capitalism – Hegel wanted like sort of something similar to the guild system to still be in as like a mediating force between individuals and the market, but also that like people have a little bit more freedom to move around or try different things or, or be different types of people, but that that kind of communal aspect of meaning making was critical because it's not really something that somebody generates on their own, right? And that one of the problems with a sort of fully kind of capitalist society with no with sort of a breakdown of mediating institutions and where everything is mediated through technology is that those sort of intermediate structures where people can sort of find systems of, of, of values that resonate with them, where they can act and pursue goals that aren't just individual goals but are related to a broader collective, which is really, really important to human beings, that that piece breaks down. But um, any sort of notion of that is, is, is absent from this manifesto. Yeah, that's mm. not Kaczynski's idea of yeah. meaning, right? right? Kaczynski's idea of meaning is that it is essentially intrinsic to the individual, probably biological, maybe an epiphenomenon of that biology, but it's really all about this power process. I think that's reductive. I think that, you know, he actually, it's not, he's not talking about meaning. Right. He never uses the word meaning. Meaning would yeah. be too sort of airy, yeah. existentialist. He's talking about purpose in the sense of processes. And that's why he calls it uh, it's the power process. Right. It's this. It's funny for a guy who hates technology so much. This is like very mechanistic in its outlook. Right. But the thing about it is well, it, including like his diagnosis of leftists, his diagnosis of the problems with society. Like it's it is a combination a, it is a mechanistic. Of, well, it's a combination of narcissism yeah. and a mechanistic analytic framework. But yeah, but that's madness. You can't compare a thought process that seems mechanistic to a computer or technology. Like that, no, no, no. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm just terrible, man. I'm it's saying what process. part of what's interesting about this though is if you were to sort of conjure in your mind what this manifesto was like from the kind of 
atmospherics you get about Kaczynski and the popular culture, right? This is not what you'd imagine, I don't think. It's not really obsessed in like a paranoid sci-fi way with the machines taking over. No. He's like not interested in the machines, actually. It has no real romanticism to it. For a guy who fled to the wilds of Montana and was inspired to this, it's not romantic in the least. It is kind of coldly analytical and where I think it's very resonant in part where I think he, he really gets something. There are two places where I think he makes a very compelling argument. Um, one place is that in this loss of autonomy, right? He makes a comparison between, um, modern human beings who could at any moment be killed by systems outside their control. Right. These massive mammoth systems, the nuclear reactor melts down. You and everyone you love is zapped into radiation. You can't do a damn thing about it. Right now, a thousand years ago, you could be killed by an animal. Uh, you could be killed uh, while farming. You could be killed by lightning. But in each of those things, either you had some individual agency or fate was there. Nature was an implacable force to which there was, if not, if there was no appeal to nature, nature at least had a kind of living animated force in one's life in the, in the form of fate or, or belief in divine dignity. or whatever. Yeah. And, and now you say dignity. Uh, and I think there's definitely something to that. And, and also control in a sense, right? And if you look at the kind of evolutionary theory, the more recent evolutionary theory, you know, there's something called Dunbar's number, which is mm. relates to the size of the communities that we're evolved to live in, right. which happened to be about 150 probably. This is, appears to be what our brains are designed to socialize in. Well, that's the max, right? Yes, which yeah, is basically like this, yeah, that many people around. It's a, it's a kinship group, basically, right? Mm. But part of what I think Kaczynski gets right here is that when you have this massive scaling up in technological society, what happens is that those fears, that relationship to the things that could kill you, becomes disembodied and ambient. And because you can't, no one's scared about the nuclear reactor day to day, yeah. right? And because it's not the bear that's going to kill you or the famine that's going to kill you, the presence of death becomes unnatural, absurd, and ambient in a way that, uh, you know, that, that makes it difficult to live with. Um, and, it's, it's, uh, it's neither natural nor really human, right? Like, I mean, I think about, like, what a... <laughs> Like what a, what a corporation is, right? That, you know, if you have a – if you have a company owned by an individual and that company is screwing over their workers, right, then there is a particular individual who is making choices to screw over the workers, right? If you have a corporation, you have this sort of more diffuse power structure where it's like, yes, you have a CEO, but they're responsible to investors – the investors have no relationship to the workers really in any real sense. They just have an interest in maximizing profits. Um, and so when the sort of corporation is obeying its logic, right, it might be treating workers well if that's what will work in, in the market at that time. It might be screwing them over 
uh, depending on what the structure of the laws are, the ability of the workers to organize, or what have you. But there's no one person that you can blame. It's sort of a system that, um, you know, if you take out one CEO and put in another, it's not like you're necessarily going to get a better set of outcomes. Um, somebody at the bottom of that pyramid might still be in a crushing situation where it's a it's a product of human activity, but there's no individual that you can actually picture and face to blame for this problem. I just want to grab this guy by his throat. Yeah, where is he? Where is he? Where's who? The guy making me do all this extra shit. Where is he? I just choke my way up that corporate ladder till I get to that eyes wide shut party and everybody's sitting there getting blown. Right? And I come, I just kick the door open. Well, I think that answers the case for, like, revolution, in a sense, you know, because, like you said, there isn't just one person. The whole system is a mess, you know. There's not, like, one guy that we can have a go at. Like, you know, why is everybody on antidepressants? Why is everyone so depressed? It's not one guy. It's not one woman. It's just everything, you know. And I I think I, w I just want to talk about quickly as well, like, sorry to just go off your point, but I think the way we're kind of looking at this, no, none of the young men that have read this recently and have kind of come towards this Ted Kaczynski cult, if you like, care about this level of granular detail. What it is, is they're, they're working hard or they're in school. They're not seeing a lot of payoff. They're con constantly surrounded by technology and haven't really seen their lives change for the better. They get depressed and then they'll go into the forest and, you know, and they'll feel better. And then they might read something Ted Kaczynski said and think, yeah, that's a good point. Now, you know, I've got I've got his manifesto in front of me and there's literally two whole pages where I've written um, absolutely stupid, insane. Uh, what the fuck is this? Is this really his solution? He's making excuses for himself, blah, blah. <laughs> but then there's also parts where I'm like, reread this every time you feel depressed. You know what I mean? It's it's it, the people are not people are looking for an antihero, especially in our age. And I think whenever that happens, somehow we just kind of you know, anti, and people see it as he is anti-elite. Um, and you know, I think that about as deep as it goes. And nature and forests are cool. And that's it, you know? I don't even think it goes that deep, man. I, I wonder how many of these Uncle Ted kids online or, or Ted was right, Twitter handles or whatever, even go into the forest. I get the sense a lot <laughs> well, of them. There is the meme guys. I'm not talking about them. There is yeah. definitely a, a <laughs> there is something movement, great about somebody the... making memes based on this. Like you're you're yeah. talking about who, Jake? You're talking about guys who take this a little more seriously. Oh yeah, I know. Like that pine tree gang shit didn't start with idiots memeing. Like there were certainly memeing. Do, do you want to explain know, what that like, is? A good handful of them would vanish and just be gone for however long and come back with images of yeah, Jake. Tell us what ben. the pine uh, pine tree gang is so so that was like he's dead now for a, for a while like last year and some of the year before there was like a kind of contingent on twitter who were like pro kaczynski um pine tree gang they called themselves and you know they were they were um separating That's such a bad gang name <laughs> yeah well they would put a little pine tree in their twitter name to distinguish who they were and they were just like sharing ted memes and talking about his writings but you know it was actually a little bit deeper than just memes and i'm certainly in touch with a few of them now and there's at least three of them where their lives have changed there's one lad i, I used to talk to who basically came away from being a fascist by reading kaczynski which sounds ironic because he he has a lot of ideas that people 
not me, but people who think a fascist and, you know, think he's aligned to. But the idea of real freedom, you know, like wild nature. I know a lad that when he read that, he was like, why the fuck am I trying to control people with, you know, fascist ideas? And he came away from it. And now he's like a really nice kid. And, you know, and, and so there is some levels to it. That's just specific, I know. But also in the in the 90s and early 2000s, I know that there was, you know, like... Um, the radical green movements, uh, Animal Liberation Front as well, uh, ELF, Earth Liberation Front. I know some people that were arrested within the Green Scare times, and all of them are like 100%, like, we love Ted. And these are like leftists, anarchist leftists, you know, environmentalists, and they're like, we fucking love Ted, we agree. So, you know, there is certainly, there, it is more than means. This time around, it's more means than it is substance, but there's definitely a little bit more there. Do, do you want to explain the wild nature thing? Because that's his that's his solution to this problem, is a return to wild well, nature. Well, so wild nature, I mean, it's been a while since I read this, um, but wild nature, as far as I'm aware, it's this idea of, we'll put it this way, you know, you might get Greenpeace who say like, oh, if we give this little bit of land here and have 50 cows in it, then everything's okay again. No, like wild nature is how it was meant to be before the humans arrived. You know, so it's not like, We'll ring fence this bit and put the horses there. It's like wherever the horses want to roam, they will roam. And we have to live within their parameters rather than forcing the animals to live within ours. And this, um, I may have got that wrong, but that's how I understood it. No, I think that's it. And, and it relates mm. to Kaczynski's idea, and I think an idea in a lot of kind of uh, radical uh, eco-anarchist whatever circles that reform is not possible. And... Yeah, you know, exactly. And look, I, I think that there are different reasons why this is appealing to people. One of them is, you know, there's this tremendous dissatisfaction among people whose uh, basic power process has been taken care of with modernity. So mm. some of the people who Kaczynski is describing as sort of most afflicted by technological society might end up being you know, based on their psychological profile, receptive to this. But it takes these different forms, this rejection of technological society or this revolt against, you know, look, Marx talked about uh, the alienation caused by labor, but Marx had a generally positive view of technology insofar as it provided for basic human needs and capitalism had taken us out of feudalism and provided... It was part of a progression. Part of the progression, right? Yeah, well, Marxism's just state capitalism, so... <laughs> yeah, I, I see this more often. But, you know, the one of the interesting things about, like, the Kaczynski comeback to me is that you see these people who arrive at precisely the opposite conclusion and yet, as Kaczynski, and yet seem to have affinities with him. Now, somebody Jake and I are both Weird, interested bro. in... I was thinking of Cody Wilson, Jake, who's the three yeah. guns guy who you've interviewed. I wrote a profile of. Yeah, that profile is fantastic. Um, Thank what's, you. It, what's it called? Uh, yeah, that is it Send Guns and Money? Is that yeah, it? Yeah, Send Anarchists Guns and Money yeah. in The Baffler. And Jake also did a very interesting interview with him on Popular Front. But, you know, one of the lines I, I wanted to use that I think got cut to sort of. Cody Wilson is this complicated guy. He's the guy behind 3D Guns and 3D Gun, Ghost, ghost Gunner, uh, 3D Printing, and is this sort of – He's putting he's jail putting, now. He's putting online the specs that you can print a gun from your home. That was the big legal dis, uh, dispute was over the, the 
designs, the blueprints in order to print these guns. Right. Um, but the thing about Wilson is, but his that, true crime was being unbearably pretentious while he was doing it. Uh, his yeah, his true crime was sleeping with an underage woman. Actually, <laughs> yeah, that, exactly. that's the one they arrested him for. <laughs> But, yeah, uh, that's the big one, you know? <laughs> yeah, they did not. He's not. I didn't, I didn't know about yeah, that. Yeah, he hasn't retained a lawyer because he's pretentious. But uh, but Wilson is nobody's fool. Um, and one of the ways you could sort of describe him is imagine Ted Kaczynski, but pro-technology. You know, what if. That's a great way of putting it. I've never even thought about that. Yeah, yet. like what if you shared all of we Kaczynski's premises about how evil technology is, but thought the solution was more technology, basically? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is the sort of, in a sense, that uh, one aspect of the, the kind of accelerationist trend that we're surrounded by at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's the, I think it's um, the anti elitist side of it as well you Mm -hmm. know i think he very much ties into that and you know the idea that well i want this how dare the state tell me not to have it you know that kind of thing i think as well kaczynski taps into the well at the minute i think people are realizing more and more that the kind of theorists or the people that oh well he said that so it's true like people now with this ironically with the with the massive information they can now get to are realizing they don't really it's not really a thing like like well let me put it like what's kaczynski say he says something like um the theories are just like the currency of the theorists they don't really here it is like consequently the theories are designed to serve the needs of the theorists more than the needs of any people who may be unlucky enough to live in a society on which the theories are imposed now i think that is definitely relevant to today people are realizing like Oh, well, this guy said this. And instead of being like, oh, okay, they go, I'm so fucking what? Like, I don't care. I don't care if this guy said that. I don't care if whoever, you know what I mean? It's, I, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I think, I think we now live in a time where kind of destroying, um, you know, precious ideas is really easily done now. Like, people are just like happy to be like, fuck that. Everybody wants something new and something else. And I certainly think, whilst Ted doesn't exactly provide anything that's very usable or useful, the idea that he wants to do that as well is almost enough for people. Yeah. You know, there's an obvious question to bring up with all these, uh, blow it all up, um, eliminate technological society people, which is what makes you think that, uh, people wouldn't just reconstitute technology. Yeah. And and he sort of addresses that, but there's a a basic question about what technology actually is, which is, very, very, very important. Yeah. Very he difficult to answer. A lot of technology, like, yeah. and again, he starts technological um, uh, slavery with a critique of anarcho-primitivism, yeah. saying how like ridiculous it is because it's not practical. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. he, if you look at his cabin, he had so much shit that he used a saw. You know, like the guy's not against. Yeah, and this, things. but and this is also like his critique is not. It's not like oh, we have iPhones, right? It's before that. It's it's oh, technology allows us to live in cities um so yeah you know it's much it's much before that you know I, I i was thinking of of walcott and there's a bit in um derek walcott's omeros where it's this long poem about these like um caribbean fishermen right and then one of the fishermen becomes a taxi driver and there's a scene towards the end of the book where the poet comes back after this has happened, and one of the main characters has died, and he gets a taxi driver, and the guy is taking him along. And the guy is, like, pointing out all these changes in the island 
um, that the poet hates, but the taxi driver is actually kind of excited by, right? Um, uh, and he eventually writes, Art is history's nostalgia. It prefers a thatched roof to a concrete factory and the huge church above a bleached village. The gap between the driver and me increased when he said, the place changing, eh? Where an old rum shop had gone, but not that river with its clogged shadows. That would make me a stranger. All to the good, he said. I said all to the good, then. Whoever they are, to myself. I caught his eyes in the mirror. We were climbing out of Makud. Hadn't I made their poverty my paradise? And I think that this kind of, like nostalgic fetishization of a previous state is, I mean, it's a sort of, it's a dangerous tendency. And one of the, the problems with, with this is it goes counter to sort of things that people clearly want, right. And express through, you know, what they do with their lives and how they use their Liberty. And so, um, I don't know. It's, 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 you, don't, you don't really have a choice if the town decides we're going to knock all those building downs and put up a factory. You know, like I wouldn't say people want that. I think what Phil is getting at is that people want to be able to escape from, let's say, having to worry about hunger all the time. They want. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the thing is, right, to give the devil his due, the thing is, and this is where you get to the fu- fundamental nature of what is technology. What is this right. thing, technology? You know, it comes from a Greek word, techne, which was, had more to do with craft, actually. And there are the, you can find different Greek definitions from it. But if you look at the et- etymology, it's important because in the original sense, it, technology is not autonomous machinery. It, it's it's a, a kind of designed craft, but it's opposed to sophie, to wisdom. And the thing is that you begin by wanting to escape from the immediate privations, design weapons to protect yourself from saber-toothed tigers, uh, a hut to keep yourself out of the rain, whatever. The distinction that Kaczynski makes is between technologies that can be replicated by an individual or a small scale tribe and technologies that require sort of mass scale. Now, I think that's an artificial distinction if you push it too far. But the reason why he makes that distinction is that he's saying that he's not opposed to all tools, right? He's saying he's not opposed to tools. He's just opposed to those tools that make human beings irrelevant or that take their agency away. The same way you're saying, Jake, you know, a person doesn't have any cho- uh, choice in the factory going up in their town. The factory in the Kaczynski uh, analysis is part of an organizational technology that needs to be eliminated, whereas the saw in his cabin is an individual tool that doesn't need to be eliminated. The problem is that conflicts with another part of the Kaczynski theory, which I think is actually very smart and trenchant and has become increasingly relevant in our own lives, which is that between the long-term benefits of human societies and the immediate gains proffered by, or the immediate advantages proffered by technology, the technology always wins. It always wins. It only goes forward. Yeah, he says you can't separate the good technology from the bad technology. That's right. Uh, It only goes forward. It only gets larger. And so there is a way in which 
we have no choice in these technologies. Our choice has been systematically eliminated by the scale of the technologies. And we can sort of trim them at the edges, but the direction is, it only moves in one direction, which is towards less human autonomy, less human agency, and ever more networked uh, technological world in which humans become sort of subsidiaries of these these technologies. Now you get like the the kind of um, Nick Land, actually borrowing from Heidegger in some ways, this, this view of technology as a kind of force unto itself with its own telos pursuing its own ends. You know, I, I don't believe that necessarily on the other hand. Yeah, like an intel, like this is the artificial. The artificial intelligence has always been with us. It's only ever been growing. It's the technology that already already exists. It doesn't have consciousness. It just has a will to power or a will to proliferation, vastly, vastly more powerful than our individual consciousness and agency. And if that's true, right? If that's true, what Kaczynski is saying is. If you can't meaningfully stick only to those technologies that are beneficial to human beings, that make them happier, that make them live longer, whatever, if the choice is between total domination by technology and and no technology, you have to destroy all of it. And he doesn't think people can pull this off on their own. He's saying a crisis is going to come and we ought to help it along because it'll it'll make us better off. You need a Butlerian jihad. <clears throat> yeah, he's yeah, a yeah. You know, <laughs> like my, my favorite bit on that is his bit about how revolutionaries should have like lots of children because he thinks the children of revolutionaries will then become revolutionaries and right. they'll like grow the ranks. And I just read that and I thought of the picture of Ted. Uh, as the the yeah, he's never had sex, by the way. <laughs> well, I just don't think there are a lot of people who are looking. He at was him a like, virgin, Jake. You know that for a fact. I don't know that for a fact, but it's it's pretty well. It's it's it, 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 at the very least, he was an absolute loner. Like you have to remember that as well mm. when taking. Okay, yeah, so a lot, here's a, a thing. Lot this, he was angry at the world. You know, he was clearly angry at the world. I think we can Not all just agree. Because he was technology, angry. though. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. But there is the bit. Like I just see this bit here. He says, like, the talks to exactly what you're saying. He says, uh, first we must work to heighten the social stress within the system so as to increase the likelihood that it will break down or be weakened sufficiently so that a revolution against it becomes possible. That is huge right now within edgy political groups that idea you know uh, accelerationism we need to cause chaos until or accept the chaos so that then the revolution can happen you know it's yeah. it's kind of the kali yuga concept in a weird yeah, way yeah, it's yeah, madness. Yeah. so i got i have one bit from don carpenter's hard rain falling oh, i want to read yeah um there's a great crime novel jake great american crime novel I would highly recommend uh, that we've talked about before. Yeah. And I, I just kept thinking about it as he was going on about like autonomy and, and mm. what humans need. Maybe what he wanted was freedom. Maybe he looked around and saw that everybody was imprisoned by Oakland, by their own small neighborhoods, everybody by breathing the same air, inheriting the same seats in school, taking the same stale jobs as their fathers, and living in the same shabby stucco homes. Maybe it all looked to him like a prison or a trap, the way everybody expected him to do certain things because they had always been done a certain way, and they expected him to be good at doing these strange, meaningless, lonely things. And maybe he was afraid of the buildings, the smoke, the stink of the bay, the gray look everybody had. Maybe he was afraid that he too would become one 
one of those grown people whose faces were blank and lonely, and he too would have to satisfy himself with a house in the neighborhood and one of the girls from high school and a job at one or another factory and just sit there and die of it. So he ran for the only frontier he ever heard about and became a cowboy. But of course, he brought it all with him when he ran, and it kept at him, jabbing, destroying, murdering, until he himself was all gone and nothing was left but a man's body doing work. And finally, that died too. So I'm like a cool guy. Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather live that life than fucking waste away nine to five in an office and then kill myself when I'm 25, to be honest. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but let me like, ask I get what you. you're saying, but it always comes back to that. You know, like, yeah. Ted was wrong about a lot of things, but he was right about this thing of, you know, you said, for example, earlier, like, well, it's a good job people don't have to like worry about starving to death now, which is obviously a fucking great, great thing. You know, not all of the world, but like a lot of the world. But also, if you look at the, the biggest killer of men under 30, I think under 40 now, in this country at least, it's themselves. So why are men killing themselves at such a rate? It's society. There's some, you know, there's so many drugs, addiction, horrible, terrible shit, like sex crimes are happening. Like society is sick. And just because, okay, we don't have to worry about hunger or whatever, I don't know. I think, okay, that's good. But, you know, <laughs> that doesn't mean we're okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think um, I think that I would like to imagine the possibility of meaningful control over technology and that it has existed in limited ways at different times and that this is, you know, to me, it's the great challenge of the post-industrial world is to prove Kaczynski wrong, not wrong as a terrorist, that's easy, but to prove him wrong in terms of the all or nothing choice between uh, destroying technological society entirely or submitting to it entirely and being um, completely enslaved by it. And, um, you know, we, we need to, this is, I'll just say one last thing to come back to like this very fundamental question of what technology is we need to think a little bit harder about this. I know that's a cliche um, that we need to think harder about something, but um, we need to clarify what, what we mean by technology and what our relationship is to it. Because one way to look at technology is as a reflection of a way of looking at the universe, which is to say that the external world is nothing but a unlimited series of technical problems that can be overcome. Right. Right. And when we see this in a kind of social constructivist, left wing social constructivist position, there's no such thing as biological sex. You know, we're fairly dismissive of this. and we, we view it as absurd. Right. But that kind yeah. of left wing social constructivism pales in comparison to the technological view of the whole universe as nothing but a technical problem to be overcome. Yeah. You know, both of them are contemptuous of sort of nature, of intrinsic purpose. Um, but the social constructivist position is like a, a cute little plaything compared to technology trying to master everything. And so the, the, the alternative way of looking at technology is to try and restore technology to the, the status of craft or of tool. And I don't think that that's impossible, 
but nor do I think it's possible to do that without placing significant limits on technology. And to say that uh, there's this 40 hour conversation between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris, that is this infamous thing because Harris has Peterson on his program and the, they're supposed to have a debate about whatever Peterson's philosophy, empiricism, metaphysics, whatever. And it bogs down in the first three minutes over the meaning of truth. And then they just debate for three hours about the meaning of truth. And one of the points Peterson makes, Peterson in his Christian, post-Christian, Christian, Darwinian, pragmatist, whatever, philosophy is saying that truth is not just what can be empirically, deterministically arrived at, which is Harris's position. Peterson is saying, he has a different standard of truth. He's saying truth is that which allows human beings to survive. If it favors survival, it's true. And so he's saying in that sense, okay, nuclear bombs are not true. That we should not have built nuclear bombs. Now, the math is true because the math works. But he's saying that's a like a, a demiurge, a lower form of truth. Whether you think that, that that postulate of truth is true or not, we better figure out how to incorporate something like that, some limiting principle. Yeah. I also think well to to go back it's, to Heidegger, like one of the things one of the things that he has a problem with the sort of technological way of viewing the world is it, it leeches a sense of um like awe before before the world and the sort of uh the kind of different sort of ways of understanding and incorporating yourself into a reality that's fundamentally mysterious, right? And that is open to more possibilities than the kind of mechanistic, materialist Sam Harris position. Um, and I think that's, I think that's true. I think that's a problem. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't think that uh, Kaczynski worked out a solution, but. All right, fair enough. I'll, I'll accept that. <laughs> There's one, there's one more thing I just wanted to mention about the manifesto. I just like going through it. There's there's one thing I think he was really right about back in the day without even realizing. So it's 163. It says, suppose the system survives the crisis of the next several decades. By that time, it will have to have solved or at least brought under control the principal problems that confront it, in particular that of socializing human beings. That is making people sufficiently docile so that their behavior is no, no longer threatens the system. Now that is happening on a huge scale. Now, I think he thought of it in a way of some other social, some other like totalitarians controlling people or TV or whatever. But we're seeing people become docile almost in the form of like play acting politics. So in my opinion, when I see all those DSA guys, DSA Kong doing jazz hands, that is keeping people docile. They think they're involving in some kind of important radical agenda and there's nothing radical about it. They're being sidelined by identity politics and tricked into thinking what they're doing is, is like really wholly important. If this revolution comes and the barricades go up like they fucking talk about, trust me, the last thing on their minds is going to be jazz hands and gender pronouns. They're going to come to the people that do bad stuff and want them to do something. You know what I'm saying? So there's the other side of it as well is people are just not going to do anything anymore. They've got Instagram. They've got themselves to care about. So if something bad happens, people are already docile, again, in my opinion, thanks to technology. 
like, oh, cool, that's happening there. Next minute, don't worry about it. Kim Kardashian doing something, which sounds childish and almost like a fucking fight club thing. But it's true. Like, it's really there. You know, people are being kept docile, in my opinion, through distractions via social media. It's like social media could be used for the best shit ever. And it's not. It was doing well, you know, the uh, Egyptian revolution, for example. And now everybody's been tricked into becoming docile again. And that's where I see a big problem with left-wing organizing, specifically in America. For me, it's all just a game. You know, I love this this concept of radical liberal. Like 90% of the so-called uh, communists and even anarchists I see in the US are just liberals that like edginess, you know. Um, and they're just being kept in this docile state and they think they're making a difference. And whilst they're allowed to carry on doing DSA and jazz hands and that, they're actually doing absolutely fucking nothing. In fact, they're doing worse than nothing. They're feeding the fascists, uh, you know, they're feeding them and allowing them to mock them. And while the fascists are busy getting guns and killing people, these guys are doing things that are completely ineffectual and calling it leftism. So I don't know. I think in that side of things, he was very right. Like the docile, how technology can make you docile is for me the biggest problem. I have... I have comments on that particular gender pronoun stuff, but I think that can be a, a legitimate big deal for some people, but um, we should probably table that and move on to OK Computer. Sure. All right. Jake? All right, listen. The choice of Radiohead's OK Computer. Um, the reason why I wanted to talk about this is I remember how big a deal it was when it came out, for one thing. I sent this to Jake. I said, you want to do Radiohead? And he said, I hate those guys. And then two minutes later, emailed me back and said, oh, no, I was getting them mixed up with Coldplay. You're not the only one to do that. But uh, <laughs> no, I think Radiohead, unlike Coldplay, who's uh, treacly and terrible, Radiohead not only had a really great sound and put out some great records, they also were important in a way. They were sort of, they were one of the last bands, one of the last records, OK Computer, to really hit and have broad cultural impact. Phil and I were talking about this and, you know, Outkasts, uh, Stankonia mm -hmm. was another one around the same time. But they're, they're really, you don't have records like that, that we are plugged into at least anymore that seemed to maybe we're just old but entire, i mean certainly we're just old <laughs> but it could also be the case that you know the media landscape is fractured so much you just don't have that kind of broad cultural impact but okay computer was a record that you know was sort of important in its moment it had all these big videos on mtv incredible music videos paranoid android the first one that came out and uh Karma Police to me might be the best music video ever made. And um, they 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 didn't think it was going to be like they gave them complete creative control. And when Radiohead came back with this album, like they downgraded their sales figures because they didn't think it was going to sell or be as sort of accessible as their previous work. Um, and then it was just you know had this major impact. Yeah. So the th what is the what is this record about? Okay, computer. It's about. You know, it's not just technophobia. It's not just um, fear of the machines, though certainly that's there. It's this ambient dread of a technological society. And I thought in that sense it also related very directly, but it's this 
very poetic sense of car crashes, corrupt politicians, uh, dead end jobs, dead end jobs, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, telephone marketers, uh, consumer advertising, and an emotional around. register that is. I have to say, I'd never uh, listened to this album in its entirety. I'd, I'd heard some of the songs before, um, and <laughs> I will say that I don't think you're supposed to listen to this album for the first time when you're a 35-year-old with two children under the age of four. Because um, <laughs> it's it's a very whiny record. <laughs> um, and so there was a little bit like, you know, I, I have two kids, um, and if we're, you know, if we're eating crackers and then I take the crackers away from my children, I suddenly have an impromptu Radiohead cover band. Um uh, whining for more crackers. Um, so it wasn't, uh, I sort of listened to it and I was like, you know, when I was a teenager, I probably would have loved this. Uh, I don't think I'll be going back and putting it on repeat, but I thought it held up. I mean, it <laughs> just wait till your, your daughter's old enough to really complain about Possibly. crackers. Uh, but, I like, think he's so smart as well. Like, uh, what's his name? The main guy? That he looks Tom York. Yeah. yeah, Tom York. Like, he's so smart in terms of, uh, like, he knows what is, he just knows what's good. You know what I mean? But it's not, for example, like, okay, computers could be, I fucking hate, like, political music in general. Like, I know all music can be, like, you know when it's overtly political? Yeah, yeah like, not political my thing. It's fucking terrible. Whereas, like, okay, computer, it's just, it's not even like that. It just works, you know what I mean? It's, it feels real, you know what I'm saying? I even agree. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And I don't, I don't find it whiny, actually. I've given up, God, it's not enough. I've given up, God, but we're still on the The emotional register is like, and it, it'll go from like this sort of it's dread, plaintive it's complaint dread, yeah. to to dread to like rage, right? Like paranoid yeah. android yeah, yeah, yeah. will will spit into this like spin into this sort of like what feels like within the context of the song impotent rage, um, and so yeah, it does. It captures this very particular, not just one mood, but a f- set of fluctuations within like what feels like an individual in a society where they don't feel entirely in control, um, where there's a dread of, of technology, a sense of dislocation, and the different kind of like emotional moves that somebody goes through as they experience them, themselves in that state. And I, you know, I thought it did it really well with, you know, with the, the caveat that <laughs> I mentioned before. Yeah, yeah, I think that the the thing we were talking about before, right, and the songs that to me do this the most are, and uh, I'll read some of the, the lyrics in a minute because I think some of them are, are very powerful, but the first track, the opening track, Airbag, and uh, Exit Music for a Film, Fitter, Happier, um, trying to think what else. Subterranean, Homesick, yeah. a- Alien. They communicate this disembodied, featureless dread 
in a way that resonates directly not with the register of Kaczynski's complaint or the temperament or the purposes, of, not, mm-hmm. not with that at all, but with the point that we were talking about earlier about how one of the features of technological society is that you become alienated from the true sources of your primary emotional responses. So the things that should cause you fear because they could kill you are invisible or don't cause you fear. And yet that fear gets, it travels up into the clouds like static and then, you know, it it, it gets dissipated into the atmosphere. It's because people have suddenly become obsessed with consequences of things. They used to be obsessed with mere products and packages and uh, launching these things out into markets and into the public. Now they've suddenly become concerned about what happens when these things go out on the highway. What happens when this kind of program gets on the air? What happens? They want safety air, safety cigarettes, safety cars, and safety programming. This need for safety is a sudden awareness that things have effects. So the fact that you don't know about the sword hanging over your head because it has to do with the the cleanliness of a water supply you're not aware of or what are politicians making decisions thousands of miles away. The fact that these things aren't directly in front of you to scare you in a, a boo sense or a another man trying to kill you sense or a, a woman trying to slit your throat sense doesn't mean that 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 fear, that apprehension doesn't exist. It just becomes ghostly in a way. Yeah, there's a... There's it's too a, comfortable. Yeah, there's a really great um, Timothy Kreider essay. Who's Kreider? Uh, he's, he's an essayist, and I think he's a cartoonist too. But he talks about, like, he's sort of, you know, a very neurotic person. Um, but he bikes through New York City, and uh, and people are like, you know... He's, he's like, natural selection has made us hypervigilant, obsessively replaying our mistakes and imagining worst-case scenarios. And the fact that we've eliminated almost all of our the immediate thre- threats from our environment, like leopards and Hittites, has only made us ever more jittery because we're now constantly anticipating disasters that are never going to happen. The prowler, rapist, serial killer lurking in the closet, a pandemic of Ebola, blue bird flu, hantavirus, the imminent uh, fascist social zombie takeover, right? And then the disasters that do befall us are mostly slow, incremental ones that seem abstract and far away until they suddenly blindside. And he says, which is why it's such a relief and exhilarating joy to break the clammy paralysis of worry and place yourself at last in real physical danger, which is him bicycling through New York City. Um, And that it's, you know, he says, it's the one time when I'm never anxious or afraid, not even when a cab door swings open right in front of me, because there's just enough of an actual threat um, to situate himself in the moment reacting to it um yeah it's like being at war man like you'll know this as well jacob like more than i do because you know i've never thought i just reported on it but there's something about being a war that fascinates me in that like back home i've got all these problems like money worries i'm in debt blah 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 and then when you're there it's like none of that matters because you're just thinking like you know don't die or you just realize that people around you is just like, man, this my problems mean nothing anymore. And there's something kind of cathartic about that, I think. Let me give it some of the lyrics of, uh, so this is from Subterranean Homesick Alien. 
is the opening of the song. The breath of the morning, I keep forgetting the smell of the warm summer air. I live in a town where you can't smell a thing. You watch your feet for cracks in the pavement. High up above, aliens hover, making home movies for the folks back home of all these weird creatures who lock up their secrets, lock up their spirits, drill holes in them in themselves, and live for their secrets. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it the the kind of the lyrics and the music, um, they swing between the anxiety and the dread we're talking about, and then you know, rage, a, a powerful rage, and it doesn't know quite what its object is, um, but it's looking for something to lash out at. And the thing about the sound of the record is that, you know, it's sort of um, electronic-ish in an early way, though it's still like very guitar heavy and uh, definitely doesn't sound like electronic music, but it was a very sort of, it, it was a record with a lot of atmospherics. I know they were into uh, Roxy music and stuff, uh, sort of very produced stuff like that. But the record sounded like the modern world in a way that, you know, in a, in a kind of big way where it swept up a lot of the feeling of um, feelings that were just beginning to sort of crystallize in that particular way at that time that I think we take for granted now and that have, again, you know, they build up, then they dissipate, then they build up, then they dissipate. And that was a moment where they had really built up. And it feels to me like they are building up again now or have been building up again now for some time. I don't know that it's possible to have a cultural statement in the same way you could make a cultural statement then because of how the media landscape has changed. But uh, I hope also, so. Also, this is another technology thing. Like the more access you have, it diminishes all art, in my opinion. So, for example, if you look at the way music was digested in the UK back in the day, for example, when Oasis was around, and my friend said something to me, and I, it really made sense to me. He said, the way technology is now and the way sharing and we're so connected, a band like Oasis just couldn't happen now. Because back then, if you wanted to know about Oasis, you had to go and buy a music magazine. You had to go and buy a vinyl. You had to actually go to places to meet with people and talk about the music. Now, anyone can project themselves, which is a gift and a curse. You know what I mean? It's like, it's almost like you don't know what's good anymore. Yeah. It's just too much. Seems like the sort of thing, like the very human sort of thing to want to connect with people over music that Kaczynski could not possibly relate to. It just <laughs> yeah, doesn't he, he come into so his autistic. mind. Yeah. It just, he doesn't, it doesn't even seem to occur to him that, you know, human beings might want to listen to records and hang out with each other. It just, it's not in his well, that artistic- repertoire. Fulfillment, artistic desires might be uh, one of those basic things that humans need. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, that he misses. But again, it's a guy that never had any friends. You know, really, his own brother grasped him in. <laughs> you know. Yeah, like, yeah, that's right. He's a very after, after the FBI convinced the Washington Post and the New York Times to run his manifesto, and his brother read it, right? Yeah. Yeah, and then he was like, "Oh." No, it was his brother's wife because, like, he still wrote letters to his brother and stuff. And his wife must have been like, that sounds a lot like the way Ted writes because there are specific phrases and whatever. So then she convinced his brother to, like, snitch on him 
then, like, the only human connection he had that he cherished grassed him up, you know. It's kind of hilarious and tragic at the same time. You know who, I mean, obviously, uh, you can't just let the guy ever go around bombing people, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And now that he's in he prison... He extreme before. <laughs> fuck, he got extreme after that. Yeah, but listen, now he's got a fan club, too, right? He was isolated in Montana... Uh, before he got arrested, but now that he's been arrested, he's this cult figure. He can thank technology for that. He can thank technology. There are, you know, he's a serious influence on people who aren't just teenage crazies or whatever. I forget, Jake, you would know this better than me, but um, the Dark Mountain Project, are you familiar with Yeah, I really like those guys, yeah. Yeah, and they openly cite him as an influence, right? Mm. But they're they're not, like, ridiculous. No, that's what I'm saying. Who are the Dark Mountain? Like, have a little revolution wherever you can make it. And that's kind of what I like. If I had money, I would buy a house in the woods and not like a cabin. (laughs) And I certainly wouldn't be making bombs. But I would have my own little thing, you know. Like, I want to be around nature and I want to be able to bring my people around me in nature. And that's good. So I like that about Dark Mountain. It's not like kill everybody. It's it, it, it basically is like we're so hopeless that the future that it's going to get better, which I am as well. Like, I think it's way, way, way too late to stop. The, the damage we've done to the to the world. So it's like instead of trying to kill everyone and act, just make your own peace and make your own little revolution for nature within your own life, which a lot of people don't like. It's selfish, whatever. But I think it's the only real way you can live happily if you're in that kind of mindset of saving the environment. Do you know what the Georgia Guidestones are? Either you guys. Yeah, yeah, I love that. It's a real conspiracy thing for a lot of people. So the Georgia Guidestones are a series of stone tablets erected in Georgia. I forget which part of Georgia. They resemble Stonehenge. Mm. Um, And they are inscribed in seven different languages, including English and Sanskrit, with instructions on how to repopulate the world and reconstitute civilization after the apocalypse occurs. So they're unclaimed. Nobody knows who paid for them. They're very expensive, obviously. It's, a, I believe, made of marble, Jake. Uh, you might be able to correct me, but... Yeah, and they're huge. Like, enormous. They cost a hell of a lot of money. The reason why they're in that part of Georgia is because they're proximate to the marble quarry there. The only person who knows who paid for them is the lawyer in Georgia who sworn to take the secret to his grave. Oh, wow. Who I'm acted as a middleman. I'm looking at these mm. online. They're- yeah, they're, they're phenomenal. Just Google Georgia Guidestones. Yeah, they're and very they're, cool. They're inscribed they're within- out. They think it's a local businessman. Do they yeah, really? They I've heard it was the Rosicrucians, actually. Which Yeah, um- well, that, that's a bit of... I mean, there's, there's something behind the businessman, but they think... I, I remember reading a thread a while ago where they kind of worked out who the guy that paid for them might have been. You know what I mean? But yeah, it's that's so assuming that wasn't another middleman of the business. If yeah, I was true, a Rosicrucian, yeah, you know, exactly, exactly. I would work through multiple middlemen, but uh, yeah, yeah, but they, they are instructions on how to read. I think the, they say don't allow the population of the earth to get above 500,000. Maintain humanity under 500,000 yeah. in perpetual balance with nature. Guide reproduction. wisely. <laughs> Uh, unite humanity with a living new language, rule, passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's the Tower of Babel in a sense. Yeah. They're saying after the apocalypse, build the Tower of Babel. Avoid yeah. petty laws and useless officials. Balance personal rights with social duties. Oh, I dig that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah man. Good. I'm all about that. <laughs> There's something you might be interested in, actually. When I was in Retrava recently, 
we found out that like at the basic level of like just the village they have these people called the mamas like old wise women and there's like a like um i don't know like 12 of them and instead of like calling up the cops for like oh this guy punched me in the head or this guy stole my whatever they go to the mamas and like work it out that way first and if they can't work it out within the community then they take it to the next level do you know what i'm saying yeah. i was like that's fucking cool because it actually creates community while solving problems I, I I'm I'm looking at pictures of these Georgia guidestones and just imagining like the post-apocalyptic Mad Max warlord, the bullet farmer, like showing up and reading these and being like, oh, okay, yeah, or like <laughs> smashing them down to build, something, <laughs> like just ignoring them straight away. Totally unrelated to anything we've been talking about, but as we appear to have covered most of the ground we wanted to, Jake, you're just in Rojava, yeah. man. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, man, it was cool. So I um, went to Rojava, northern Syria, the area controlled by the Kurds. Um, I was helping another journalist out there, Robert Evans, cool guy. And whilst there, I managed to do a little documentary for uh, Popular Front. I did a little patrol around Raqqa, so outside of Rojava, but in, you know, further out in Syria. Um, Raqqa is completely fucked still, by the way. You know, there was like 36 sleeper cell attacks by ISIS just this year. So this is so, the for, for people who yeah, don't know, Raqqa is the former, uh, essentially, former caliphate, capital, former yeah. capital of the caliphate, like ISISville. You know, now it's kind of, it's you know they've been liberated, but a lot of the ISIS have just blended into the population. And honestly, you can see them, man. Like they'll they'll look at you, and they're almost like telling you like. I would fucking kill you if I could. Like, it's really weird. Like, when you're in the town square, for example, I fixed her. She was trying to talk to a guy who wouldn't even look her in the eye. You know what I mean? It's And if you're in Raqqa, you can guess who them kind of people are. So, yeah, there's a lot of them have kind of drifted back into this society. But also, as well as the ISIS thing, we didn't really go for that. We um, we mostly went to work out how the actual political system is working in Rojava. You know, it's all very easy when you get some kind of anarchists or communists or whatever online are like oh it's a utopia but we wanted to know like what's it actually like to the very basic level of like community policing how is tax taken you know like all of that it was yeah. it was a real interesting situation you know they've got a lot of problems still but certainly what they're trying to do is i i i can barely believe the progress that they've made in that region whilst at war put it that way you know the, the female the empowering the females is very real and very active. And, like, that's a very cool thing to see. You know, it's certainly they have problems and they really need to cut out this cult mentality that they have. But as far as the rest of Syria is concerned, like, <laughs> I was quite happy to be there, you know, in Rojava. Yeah. Jake, who is the, uh, the people in Rojava, who are they primarily concerned with right now? Are they worried about the Turks? Are they worried yeah. about Assad, ISIS? Turkey and Assad. So, like, we went to every part of Rojava, and no one is really talking about ISIS straight away. It's mostly, believe it or not, it's mostly Assad. So people are saying, like, fuck, we're so worried that Assad will end up back here um, because, unfortunately, the Kurds are trying to have to make, like, this weird, uneasy kind of relationship with them at the minute because the Americans are kind of abandoning them a bit. So they're, they're having to make this alliance slightly with Assad. But they don't want that because they know what's going to happen. Like, he's going to come for them eventually. And then the rest of them, yeah, they're like, they're worried about Turkey. Like, to, to put it in context, um, the night I was in Kobani, they shot over the border wall and, like, shot a civilian, like, randomly. And someone said to me, like, trust me, you, we haven't seen the war yet. And that's, like, seven years into fighting ISIS, <laughs> you know? And so that kind of said a lot, I think. Yeah. And they're built 
you know, they're building all sorts of stuff to try and stop what might happen. But I, I don't know. It's not looking good, man. Yeah, and they um, are sort of working out arrangements with Assad, assuming that he's going to stay in power. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear now that Assad is, has basically won the civil war, unfortunately. Right. Um, and yeah, it's a weird alliance because, you know, in, in commissionally, especially like one of the main cities in Rojava, everyone there has an uncle or a cousin or someone who's been killed or imprisoned for no reason, you know, thanks to the Assad regime. So there's this kind of DC hack, you know, idea like, you know, the analysts that never actually go anywhere. They're, they're like, oh, the Kurds love Assad. But the reality is on the ground, they, they fucking hate him, but have realized we're going to have to do a deal with him now because America isn't staying and they're going to allow Turkey to do whatever. So, you know, Turkey wants to invade. They've already removed part of the border wall. Um, and Assad has said he's going to take back every inch of Syria. So the idea is they want autonomous, an autonomous region for a job. But I think, you know, if that happens, it'll give it a few years and Assad will try and take it. Yeah, that brings me, Jake, let me just ask you one more question about this. Sure. Who do they think, um, so so it sounds like the Kurds think that the Americans are not going to back them up. I mean, obviously, like, I Americans, mean, yeah, the, the formal American alliance was with the SDF, right? And yeah. in Rojava, they're not, there's not a pretense of being the SDF, right? I mean, it's openly the... The, the whatever, YPG, PKK there? Well, no, it's it's not. Like, actually, it's not. Like, so there's two things. So, again, a lot of hacks will say the YPG is the same as the PKK. Well, it's actually not true. Sure, there's a heavy influence of PKK, and they, they worship the same leader, basically, and the ideology is very similar. But, like, for example, you meet a guy from Derezor or, like, a guy who's lived his whole life in Kamishli, and then he joined the YPG, He's nothing to do with the PKK, you know. He's, in fact, a lot of them haven't even had proper ideological training. You know, we met with YPG, and they'll be like, "Yeah, we're fighting, we're protecting our brothers." You know, our fixer, you know, God rest his soul, her little brother had been killed while fighting in the YPG. He wasn't even a poji. He wasn't even a part of the ideology. You know, he just went to help his friends. My friends are getting attacked. This group seems to be doing okay. I'll join them. There's a yeah. lot of that. This idea that YPG is the same as PKK is nonsense, but a hell of a lot of the commanders are certainly PKK. You know, they came down from the mountains to guide the fighters. Then the SDF is the, you know, the Syrian Democratic Forces is what America pulled together. Now, the idea that they're all YPG as well is nonsense because you've got Syriacs like the uh, the MFS, which are right. the Christian brigades. You've got Arabs, you've got Shammar tribes, you know, everyone is under this group. So actually... The integration of the different groups is way better than I expected, you know. When I went there, I was like, fuck, like, this is actually, they're trying to do this. And there's a lot of articles come out recently saying, oh, YPG don't let Arabs do anything. We couldn't go anywhere without finding Arab commanders, Arab men on checkpoints, you know. Like, uh, the whole Asayish unit, the internal security forces unit that I went on patrol with in Raqqa, were all Arabs who lived under ISIS in Raqqa. And now they're patrolling their city and keeping it safe. So the idea that they don't trust them, whatever, is nonsense. But yes, yeah, certainly the YPG make up the majority, don't get me wrong. But it's it's a lot more nuanced than people would like to think anyway. And I'll, I'll just say to to our listeners, this, which you just heard, is a good illustration of why, if you're interested in in military policy and wars overseas and foreign policy, you should definitely, definitely check out Popular Front. Yeah, man, we chat shit all day. <laughs> we talk about this, all of these nuances, all of these geeky fucking things. That's I right, bruv. Huh? I'm trying to do my uh, my British accent. 
that was. Jake, you got anything else you want to plug, man? (laughs) Yeah, man. So at the minute we're doing, um, I've got a fundraiser on. Um, We're trying to raise 10 grand because basically the idea with Popular Front is it's all anti-corporate. We've refused almost all advertisers. For example, Jewel Pods, you know, the smoking things, you know, wanted to sponsor us. And I was like, Philip Morris can fuck off like no way. So we are trying to keep things kind of ethical, kind of grassroots, you know. So the idea is instead of taking money from corporations, which in my opinion, venture capital has destroyed a lot of modern journalism, we're doing it through, we sell like subscriptions on a Patreon, patreon.com slash popular front. We do all like exclusive stuff. But anyway, right now we've got an Indiegogo campaign. So if you go to uh, popularfront.co slash 10, like one zero and then K, 10 K, uh, we're trying to raise 10 grand because all of our equipment is wrecked um, and we want to have a bit of money to pay like volunteers because right now I do like 98% of the work and it's it's fucking killing me. <laughs> so and, and to take things, make things better and basically put out more content, we need some money. So yeah, man, like popularfront.co slash 10K and then the other way we get the money is on patreon.com slash popularfront. Um, and we do bonus episodes. We have a, a, like this huge Discord community where people share information and research. Like for, for a lot of our community is made up of like misfits and weirdos as well. Like we say, this is no frills, no elitism. Like we want to be the antidote to PhD dinners and DC hacks having wine parties to get ahead. Fuck all them. Like this is for weirdos. And if you like that, definitely get involved. All right, that that absolutely is the final word. Um, if you're not for weirdos, stop listening to Manifesto. We don't want you. Exactly. All right, solidarity, weirdos. Be good, Rude Boy. Thanks very much, man. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>